Hi, listeners. Welcome back to Maya, my yoga audio. My name is Megan Morgan, and I'm your host. I'm happy to be back today. I wanted to share another blog post that at least for me went viral. You know, in my small world, uh, what constitutes viral is very different um, than the greater world. But it was an article I wrote back in June of 2020 called The Future of Race in the Workplace and What We Can Do Now. And being as it's Black History Month, I'm recording this in the first week of February of 2022, I thought it might be good to kind of reflect back on kind of the incredible amount of research I did for um, that particular post and to serve as a reminder as we move forward into 2022 and, and beyond um, some strategies that we can take in our everyday lives to make things better. I'm approaching this from a place of all of us wanting the world to be a better place and, and what are some of the things we can do. So when I say viral, uh, there's like just about 30 comments. This was originally posted on LinkedIn, and then I shared it to Thrive Global. And I will share those links to the, the written blog article in the show notes so you can read them if you prefer. So the title is The Future of Race in the Workplace and What We Can Do Now. And on LinkedIn, the header image uh, just shows three diverse people sitting in a corporate environment, kind of all smiling and talking together. So we can't ignore it and hope that things are just going back to normal eventually anymore. What has finally become painfully apparent to everyone in the last few months is that we have a lot of work left to do. The devastating effects of COVID-19 and the horrific and consistent use of force that more often results in the deaths of Black Americans have collided in a watershed moment, not just for this nation, but for the world as well. I'm not here to break down history and hundreds of years of systemic oppression and violence. Those books, articles, and documentaries are widely available to you. I'm here to talk about what this means in the workplace right now, and as we move forward during a critical and pivotal moment in time. To start, I'm going to lay out a handful of examples of situations I've actually experienced in the workplace over the course of the last 20 years. I've discovered that people in general can relate and listen better to people that they know. So I'm starting with you, my listeners, connections, and colleagues on LinkedIn, and I'd like to ask you to read each occurrence and try to wrestle with the impact of that moment in your life, if it had been you, and to realize that workplace examples are just a fraction of what I experience as a mixed race slash black woman in the world on any given day. There's a photo of me that I've included here uh, before the next written section that one of my daughters took in our backyard at the time where I'm just has my hair out and flowing around me and I'm looking pleasantly at the camera wearing a purple and red sweater. Number one, I've been told that I should chemically relax, cut and or straighten my hair because it's much more professional for the workplace. I've also had someone come up behind me while I was seated at my desk and start running their fingers through my hair, claiming they couldn't resist not touching it anymore. Number two, I've been told to get back on the boat where I came from. Number three, I've been asked to speak to the manager when I clearly am the person in charge with a name tag and all. And when I point this out to the person, they say, no, the real manager. Number four, 
I discovered by accident that a white woman doing the same job as I was, was earning twice as much annual salary than I, and that a white man doing the same job was receiving three times as much. Number five, I have endured more instances of micro and macro aggressions than I can count. And in the uh, original article post here, I provide a link to defining what micro and macro aggressions are that you can click on there. But basically, it's it's everyday digs um, in the workplace, which may seem like little things, but you're you're constantly having to defend yourself against um, people who think you are less than. So there's another photo here I've included of me, and it was taken, I want to say, about three years ago. And I have my hair in a long braided hairstyle, and I am smiling jubilantly towards the camera and standing in front of a camellia tree wearing a green shirt. Okay, hair. Did you know California was the first state to ban racial discrimination based on hair texture and style? And I include a link to that uh, landmark moment there. Yes, on July 3rd, 2020, it will be the one-year anniversary of it being signed into law. My friends, colleagues, and I have discussed the simultaneous relief and also utter ridiculousness of this. But the fact is, discrimination based on hair texture and style, therefore race, still happens. It's one of those things about bias that is very difficult to overcome. Employers can and do make judgments and decisions over a potential employee's appearance regardless. And black hair textures and styles haven't yet been normalized in general society. So over the years, when going to job interviews or professional events, of course, I have always dressed to impress, made sure I had copies of my resume and references in hand. And sometimes I even had copies of my degree or degrees because I've been asked for proof of those as well at the interview stage. But added to this is the completely insane worry of how to present my hair because this fear of discrimination that is very real. In its natural state, my hair is very thick frizzy, curly, and it grows up and out, not down, a lot like Angela Davis. Actually, if you don't know who she is, uh, I included a link there to learn more about her. And this hair of mine I learned at a very young age is seen as frightening, wrong, wild, not normative, and needing to be contained. And I did chemically relax it for many years. Now I braid it, twist it, sometimes I cut it, and like most women, I do different things with my hair. But for the most part, I try to keep it long enough that I can put it up and back in a bun and be, quote, acceptable in any professional situation. Why should I have to do that? Have you ever had to think about your hair like that? Did you know there are cases where people have been hired only to be told afterwards or when they showed up to work on their first day that their offer would be rescinded if they didn't comply with hair standards set by the company that would necessitate a drastic change in their hairstyle and appearance. And I provide a link there uh, of some examples of where that's happened. So what can we do now? Hair is a personal thing. But in the case of black hair, it can be hijacked as a political thing too, and it affects the work experience. And it's also just one small part of addressing bias at work. So employers have a responsibility if they really want to affect change to provide a welcoming, 
and inclusive environment that attracts diverse candidates who can just be who they are. So start off by checking yourself personally. Do you make or help to make recruiting or hiring decisions? Studies have been done that show all of us have bias in some way or another. I provide a link there. It doesn't mean it's intentional by you personally or that you're a bad person. It's unconscious, but it does need to be acknowledged and broken down. Decades upon decades upon decades of systemic systematic process and belief have contributed to this. It didn't happen overnight and it won't be resolved overnight either. But here's where you can start. Ask yourself, do you have a company dress code and does it address hair specifically? Do you need it to? If so, why? Do you have an equity, diversity, and inclusion program in place? If not, how are you planning for one and what steps will you take? Look at the demographics for your state, county, and city, or province if you're in Canada. How does that compare to the demographics and representation of your company? And what does that look like at the leadership and management level? The next photo here is of uh, the downtown harbor in New York City, and there's a boat that's driving away um, from the island that is Manhattan, and there's an American flag hanging off the back of the boat, and there's wake and foam, and the title says, We are a nation of immigrants. While the harsh comment of get back on the boat where you came from happened to me quite some time ago, the notion of being from somewhere else is also a sticky point in the workplace. I've met people of all backgrounds whose families have been in the United States for several generations, but there's often a veiled inquiry about race behind where are you from, or worse, what are you, that implies you don't belong and must be from a faraway land. When I say I grew up in Canada and moved to the United States a few years ago, there's sometimes an awkward look to the side, maybe a shuffle of the feet or a throat clearing followed by, no, I mean, where are you really from? Or, well, what's your background? I have even been outright asked this question right here on LinkedIn in private messages from people that I don't even know. And I'm not saying you can't ask people about where they are from or even what their background is. But what I am asking is why you need to know that. Do you ask everyone that question or only people who look different than you? I am an open and friendly person. Most people I work with closely and start to get to know, I feel comfortable telling my whole lifelong story to if they feel like listening to it. These kinds of conversations eventually happen organically and naturally. But when it's the first or early words you say to someone, it's offensive, period. This brutally honest article, and I include a link there, lays out how to have these kinds of conversations without coming off like a jerk, basically. So equity. And there's a photo here I've included of four people um, that are diverse looking in their appearance and they're standing um, against a fence and talking to one another. And below that is a graphic that shows that compared with white men, African-American and Hispanic women make less than white women. So we talk about the dollar amount per hour. So if a white man earns a dollar, the white woman earns 77 cents. The African-American woman earns 64 cents and the Hispanic woman makes 56 cents. And I've since seen updated graphics that also include um, 
more ethnic groups, but this is just a, a short summary of the disparity in inequity. So equity is defined as the fair treatment, access, opportunity, and advancement for all people, while at the same time striving to identify and eliminate barriers that have prevented the full participation, access, opportunity, and advancement of marginalized groups of people. Earlier, I mentioned my personal experience with the wage gap. This is so important because it directly affects the future of families and children and how generational wealth is built and distributed. I've encountered this discrepancy almost everywhere I have ever worked. And that's just me. The impacts of this issue and everything I'm talking about goes so far beyond me personally, but this is the vantage point I have to share. So folks in human resources and those in control of wage negotiations People do, in fact, find out about wage differences more often than you know, and it causes huge harm and turmoil that directly affects your retention and job satisfaction rates. Here's a sobering report, and I provide a link there, from just three months ago that breaks down where we're at right now, but essentially, and on average, Latina women earn 54 cents for every dollar paid to white men. Native American women earn 57 cents for every dollar. Black women earn 62 cents for every dollar. White women earn 79 cents for every dollar. Asian American women earn 90 cents for every dollar. And across all racial and ethnic groups, women in the United States are typically paid 82 cents for every dollar paid to men. Are the above statistics applicable to every woman and every man in every situation? No. Is the fight for equity for women and ethnic women similar but still different? Yes, I'll say it again. Yes, it is different. The fact plainly remains that wage gaps and disparity overall is so great that actual pay equity goes to the very few who manage to get to the upper echelons and then it tends to get confusing and twisted into a class argument. Any lasting progressive gains are effectively and totally lost for the majority. So what do we do about it? I've included a graphic here with a quote by the late great Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. So number one, look at your salary bands. If you're a public organization, a corporation, a company, do you have them? And if you have salary bands, are they public? If not, could you share them even confidentially with potential candidates before they come in for an interview? It's frustrating that many companies advertise positions that have double-digit salary differences. For example, 40 to 80K, depending on your experience, or sadly, none at all. Yet in every interview I've ever been on, I have been asked what I'm currently making and what I expect to make, even if they haven't advertised the salary range they're offering. I get that employers want great candidates who aren't all about salary and that there are other perks that make an offer attractive. However, this tactic always puts the ball in the court of the employer, subject to personal bias, and leaves the potential candidate, and most especially the diverse candidate, at a disadvantage. What about the common measurables like education, experience, and connections? What are the things you use to measure a candidate's worthiness and salary, and are they applied equally every time? How can you know? 
So number two, merit and performance reviews. Does your company conduct performance reviews at least once and hopefully more than once a year? Are the accountabilities clearly and equitably laid out to each and every employee? Do you do several but brief employee manager one-on-ones throughout the year? And do you regularly solicit feedback through surveys and conversations? Employees should not just be waiting for one time per year to receive feedback armed with hope against hope that they will receive some kind of raise or be working towards a promotion without any guidance on how to do that. Also, don't ask your staff to live for their work and work only to make them worthy of recognition and advancement. This is a terribly outdated notion that directly contributes to burnout and invites mental health and wellness challenges. It also wreaks havoc on families, where it is likely that both parents are working. Work-life balance needs to be recognized and supported. Number three, don't do what you've always done because it's easier. The key to authentically paving the way through with progressive change is to try to think of ways to do things better. It means taking a hard look in the mirror personally. It means taking a close look at your work environment, your clients, and your own company demographics. It probably means hiring a professional to help you navigate this territory so that you don't unintentionally do things the wrong way because you don't know better right now, even though you have very good intentions. Getting your staff formally introduced to and educated in equity, diversity, and inclusion initiatives helps to guide appropriate workplace behaviors and will cut down or eliminate instances of offensive language and actions that cause harm. Four, finally, listen to and encourage your industry colleagues and employees that are part of disadvantaged groups like women and ethnic minorities. We have great ideas and we want to live the dream just like you. Sometimes, though, we're not used to being asked to be at the table, speaking up. And we've had our intelligence, capability, and authority questioned repeatedly, and yet we so much want to be here and have a lot to offer. I heard a great quote recently that's included in this following and final article, and I provide a link there. I'll leave you with this and also want to point out the following. Nobody likes to be made to feel like a token. I've been told this before, too, that I received a job promotion because they needed someone, quote, like me, to look good for diversity initiatives, essentially erasing the fact that I'd worked hard and proven myself. If someone is made to feel that they're more valued for diversity boxes rather than their skill, potential, and added value, that is a slippery slope, too. If I can leave you with one final and positive thought, it's that I do believe most of us want an equitable, diverse, inclusive workplace and world. We don't always know the perfect words and actions, but if we can just keep trying, doing, and being open to change, even and especially when it's uncomfortable, we can get there. Thanks for getting to the end of this post with me. I'd love for you to share it if it was helpful and to know how you're moving forward, navigating race in the workplace leave a comment below. And with that, friends, I'd love to hear your feedback on this. Again, kind of a mini episode about race in the workplace and what's that looking for you during Black History Month and all year long? And did this episode help you start thinking about things differently? Email me, myyogaaudio.com. Bye for now, friends.